When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. Welcome to the Zonal Marking Euros Notebook, episode one of eight. I'm Ali Maxwell, and with me, Michael Cox and Tom Warville of The Athletic. And this is our first in-tournament Euros offering. A two-part preview, of course, beforehand, which we hope you enjoyed. What are we going to try and do during the tournament? Well, we're basically trying to wedge ourselves in between each round of matches with some ZM-style discussion of the tournament. So I think the notebook title sums it up pretty well. We're not taking on the dailies, that's for sure. We're not going to cover every game, every team in every episode and we won't be deep sea diving either. I think things age quickly, of course, and we don't want that, do we? So quite simply, I've asked the guys for some astute observations from the first round of fixtures and we'll have Anata through them as well. Think of it like tapas, a load of tasty small plates to soak it all up and there's been plenty to soak up as well. Michael Cox, you're a, a major tournament obsessive and a historian as well. How do you think the first round of matches have been so far as a spectacle? I thought you were going to call me a big tapas fan, Ali, which would have been true. But uh, yeah, I tell you what, I've really enjoyed it, actually. I think it's just been, I feel slightly reinvigorated having watched so much kind of behind closed doors football. I think the, the fans has made a big difference. Um, and I don't think it's been a bad game so far. I mean, we're, we're talking about after eight games, we've seen everyone play once. There's only been one nil-nil, which was Spain-Sweden. I thought there were plenty of well, a couple of very good chances in that game. And not many kind of massive thrashings where the game has been over quickly. I guess Belgium against Russia, probably the exception there. Uh, yeah, overall, I think the, the quality of football has been good. The tempo has been good. In general, maybe a couple of the, the warmer games, particularly England-Croatia, I think was a slightly sluggish because I just think it was very hot and difficult for teams to press. But overall, I've been pleasantly surprised. I think tournaments usually take a while to get going, but I'm not sure this one has. Don't ask me how I know this, but in Benidorm, there is a place called Tapas Alley, just a whole street of tapas restaurants. I've been there once and I don't know if I chose badly or whether they're all bad, but it was some of the worst that I've ever had. So I, I would avoid it, even if it sounds like it might have been named after me. Uh, Tom, how have you enjoyed the tournament? Of course, we spoke in the preview about the release of The Radar, which was one of the biggest projects that yourself and The Athletic have undertaken together. I think it's gone down so well and has been a great companion for me while watching these games to learn about well, 60 players in the tournament. Uh, who just, who's been the best radar performer so far, would you say? Uh, that's a great question. I think probably Briel and Bolo, and I made that thought known uh, on on Twitter as well, just because Mbolo, like a lot of the data for him really matched up with what you saw on the field. I mean, he was pressing really aggressively, carried the ball upfield, got into great scoring positions and he, he scored a goal as well. So I think that he was one where you kind of look and you think, you know, this is, we've we've done a good bit of work here. It's, uh, it's, it's going to hopefully stand itself up to the end of the tournament. You know when you have to enter a password in order to access some content that it's, uh, it's next level stuff. I've been really enjoying that. Um, if I've got 
a slightly calmer voice than usual. Uh, that's because this is Zonal Marking After Dark. This is our latest ever recording slot just after the end of France against Germany. I'm normally well tucked up by now. But Tom, of course, it's worth reminding us, what are the three different time periods in each day? So we've got AM, which of course is in, in the morning. We've got PM, which is afternoon. And we've currently got ZM. Absolutely spot on. Let's open the notebook, shall we? Uh, I think we should start with the game that I felt was the most entertaining so far. I think that's a popular view. And it was the Netherlands against the Ukraine. Just a, a bonkers game, unfiltered tournament football. Michael, you said on Twitter it felt very Euro 2008. What did that mean? Well, the Netherlands were involved in some cracking games of that tournament. They packed the side with attacking players, seemed to just absolutely play France and Italy off the park in, in that uh, in that group. So they were kind of in the group of death at the time. And then they got beaten in a, another real ding-dong game by Russia, obviously a kind of Eastern European side, which kind of reminded me of the game against uh, Ukraine. I mean, it was a... It was nil-nil at half-time, which seems remarkable because it it was just so action-packed. But it was, yeah, end-to-end stuff. I I think, actually, I was quite impressed by the Netherlands throughout that one. I mean, I know that they gave up a 2-0 lead and then had to score a a third goal themselves. But I thought they are quite impressive overall. Maybe not in terms of their pressing, but I didn't think they allowed Ukraine too many chances. Obviously, the goals came from a brilliant... Uh, outside the box kind of classic Yarmolenko goal and then a set piece from Yerimchuk but I thought overall it was um, was just good to see the Netherlands back at a major tournament more than anything else It was only maybe three or four minutes in where I think everyone watching the game either thought or as the case was tweeted hello I think something's going on here this feels uh, this feels pretty lively as part of our notebook I've noticed that Some of the players we're going to talk about this evening are the sorts of players that you get in international football who have to interpret a different role for their national team compared to where we see them week in, week out in club football. And it feels, Michael, like uh, Wijnaldum for the Dutch was a a, a really leading light in in this example. What a fantastic performance from him in a role that we're unused to seeing him play. Yeah, definitely. I remember when he was a a lot younger and still playing in the Eredivisie, he sometimes played more of this role, the kind of number 10 figure. But I really like the balance between the the front three. It almost felt a little bit like an old school front three, the type you'd see in almost Italian football 20 years ago, where you've got three players with completely different roles. You had Red Corsa up front, who I, I thought did a pretty good job as the battering ram. I mean, he's, I think, about two metres tall and uses his body very well. His back-to-goal back play is very good. Then you had Memphis Depay, who a couple of times in the first half just went on dribbles, almost trying to lead the attack on his own. And he's done that, you know, over the last couple of seasons in Liga and has done very well at just getting the ball 30, 40 yards out and roaring past opponents on his way to a clear-cut goal-scoring chance. And then, like you say, Ed Wijnaldum, I think his goal really showed what he's all about in this Dutch side. And he's shown that over the last two or three years for the national team, kind of late running into the box. He's a, he's a goal scorer much more than he is for Liverpool. We kind of tended to see it on occasion for Liverpool. I mean, he scored those two goals against Barcelona in the famous Champions League comeback. But over the course of the season, he's kind of only been scoring four or five a season, hasn't he? Whereas at this tournament... I think he'll be, you know, a real major source of their uh, chances and goals on this occasion. So yeah, I, I just thought that worked really well. That the, the three of them combined well, and like I say, they all offer something different, which I think is uh, always nice to watch. Staying with the Dutch side, Tom, your player to watch in our pre-tournament pods was the 
chunky Jamie Vardy, Valt Weghorst up front, who Michael just spoke about, two metres tall and really puts himself about. But on the night itself, it was another player that caught your eye. Yeah, absolutely. I was really impressed by Denzel Dumfries on the uh, the right wing back position. Someone who we've written about on the site a few times before, especially a couple of scouting pieces looking for a new right back or right wing back, I should say, for Arsenal and also for, for Everton as well. And so I haven't really seen too much of Dumfries. I've seen a lot of his, his data. I've seen what video we could kind of crib together for those pieces, but not actually watched a full 90 of him. And I thought he was really impressive. I mean, he made some great bursts into the the box from out wide. He had 11 touches inside the box, which I think at the time was more than any uh, other player in the tournament. And just checking the numbers now, it is still the most. So it's it's one ahead of Breland Bolo and two ahead of Harris Zafarovic, which probably shows you how attacking Switzerland were against Wales inadvertently. And yeah, I think he scored a fantastic header as well, which shows this is kind of threat in the air. So yeah, I was really, really, really impressed with Dumfries. And you can see why uh, he's kind of the profile of someone who you could expect to see in the Premier League just because... He's playing well at, at a high level for his national team and a lot of those traits you think would, would really work for a side who um, you know, need a, an attacking uh, wing-back on the right side. Amazing name as well, of course, which was getting a lot of attention on social media. With Denzel Dumfries and Wout Weghorst, they've got a couple of alliterative names with the same letter at the start of their first and surname. So I wonder if we could probably put together an 11 of, of that sort of player just off the top of my head. You've got Paul Pogba, Bosco Balaban. I've already gone to, to old players here. Zlatko Zahovic, plenty more as well where that came from. Something to think about as we chat. Uh, Michael, tactically speaking, it's only been one round of fixtures. It's only been, what, 12 games. But are there any strong or even any tactical themes from across the games that have caught your eye? Uh, first, I'm going to talk about alliterative players, I'm afraid, yes, Ali. I, I remember, remember about 20 years ago, Blackburn had Damien Duff and they had David Dunn. And then they had a player in their youth team called Darren Dunning, who I haven't heard of since, but people just got quite excited because he was another alliterative player whose name began with D. Can, um, we, can we stick Danny Drinkwater behind them as well in that case? <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, that's a good midfield quarter. Amazingly, there's a player called Gavin Gunning as well. I wonder if him and Dunning have ever have ever hung out. We'll have to research that and get back to him <laughs> for the next episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the tactical themes of the tournament, I mean, one thing I noticed in the France-Germany game tonight, which I think both sides did very well at the start of the game, was the, the counter-pressing and also the picking up on loose balls. I mean, you tend to get that whenever Ingela Kante is involved in the game, I suppose he's... He's excellent at that. But, I mean, at past major tournaments, I think that's been a real weakness compared to the club game. There hasn't been so much counter-pressing. I think it's something that has to be done cohesively. It's, it's something you do have to work on in training. And I think there's been a few sides that have done it really well, one being England, actually. I think in uh, at times in the first half of the game against Croatia, I thought they won the ball back really well. Mason Mount is very good in, in those situations. Calvin Phillips, we had a, a piece on the, on the website by uh, Mark Carey about how he was involved in uh, in regaining the ball really high. And I also thought it was a major part of Spain's game um, in a slightly different way, but they seemed to just have an incredible number of players who would track back really quickly and surround the player who was leading the counter-attack for Sweden. And that's really all Sweden did in terms of going forward. And yeah, like I say, France-Germany again tonight, I thought that was a, a strength of, of, of both sides. Maybe they weren't at their fluid best going forward. Maybe that will come later in the tournament. But certainly there's a determination to win the ball quickly. And, and like I say, that's relatively rare international football at uh, international level. So that's been one of the key themes for me. What you've got to be careful of is 
going heavy on the counter press when you haven't necessarily been drilled to do so and and that makes you vulnerable and and easy to play through. Um, Let's just touch on England. In fact, when I asked you what you wanted to focus on, it it wasn't Calvin Phillips, it was throw-ins? Yeah, that was something I noticed, um, particularly from, I mean... The big surprise, wasn't it, was was Kieran Trippier at left-back. I don't think anyone really expected that. Otherwise, the side was pretty much the same as it was in the two previous competitive games, aside from a couple of injuries. And he's obviously in there for his set pieces, at least partly. It was slightly confusing England won one corner. He didn't take it. Mason Mount took it, so that was odd. He did take a couple of free kicks, one a, a shot that hit the wall, one a float over the top to Harry Kane, who didn't quite connect as he might have wanted on the volley. But actually, I thought the best part of his set pieces were, were the throw-ins. There were two excellent ones. One in particular for uh, Raheem Sterling that led to the chance where Phil Foden had a shot deflected onto the post. And it was just the type of throw you just don't really see often. It was like an incisive through-ball Maybe not a through ball because it was into a position between the lines, but usually you think of a throw in that was effective as either being just quickly down the line or a real launch one into the box. But that was the type of pass that, had it been played with a, a player's foot, you would have said, God, that's brilliant, you know, deep lying playmaking from Kieran Trippier. And maybe it's something England have been working on. I mean, we know that the set pieces have been a fundamental part of their approach. We know that I think there's been more focus than ever on the concept of throw-ins, particularly at Liverpool with Thomas Gronemark, who's their specialist throw-in coach. And you look at the way Leeds take throw-ins, for example, and so much rotation of positions. It's, it's something teams have worked on more. And maybe it will be a one of those little things that England do have the edge over other sides on because it, there's some things England have done very well over the last couple of years and I think Southgate is a bit of a blue sky thinker, isn't he? He's always trying to find those little marginal gains and, and this might be one of them. I uh, I spoke to Gronemark earlier in the season and as part of that article there was one example against Atalanta which was almost a carbon copy of the throw that, that Trippier did. A kind of a player wasn't really looking to received the ball they sprung into action and had a ton of space in the final third and I think Liverpool even scored from it as well so I think that there are kind of Gonomart's fingerprints all over that uh, that one example that we saw and I, I'd agree with, with Michael there um, Southgate definitely is one who likes to take inspiration from other sports um, I think he's gone to the uh, the Super Bowl a couple of times and visited the training camps and and things like that, and I guess you know you're in a privileged position as England managers to be able to do that. But good that we we do kind of look elsewhere for inspiration and just try and get the you know that that one percent, that half a percent that might be the difference between a uh, yeah, in, I guess in our case, finishing first in the group or second, or going to the final versus crashing out of the semis. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Tom, I know for you and, and for those in the data analytics community, it's it's been interesting to track the the growth of professional clubs and the staff that they employ on that front Uh, and I wonder I I think it's pretty much given now that the majority of Premier League clubs and many of those in the EFL have uh, a data uh, performance analysis presence of some kind of, of, of a different size when it comes to England 
Is there anything you can tell us about that side of things? Do you know of or do you believe that the England national team has a strong data and, and performance analysis influence within the staff? Yeah, so the, the, there's a guy um, called Reese Long who essentially uh, oversees most of the, the analysis department at the FA. Um, and he's someone who's come over from, from rugby. I think he was potentially even an analyst with, with the Lions or at least the, the Welsh national team. And I think he has a lot of control and a lot of... Uh, it's a lot of his kind of work goes into de- deciding how do you analyse games, what data do you collect, what do you provide as in, in terms of insights to the teams, going all the way down from the youth teams all the way up to, to the first team. How do you make sure we have the right players in terms of pathways? Uh, and there's some interesting stuff that, that they're doing. You know, they're always looking at guys who, what what passports have they got? Could we get, you know, young internationals who potentially are dual nationality and try and get them early so that they will play for us and that doesn't always work out you've got guys like Jamal Musiala who obviously chose chose Germany but I imagine there are other examples younger down you know lower down the age groups where we've we've plucked players probably Tomori actually is one example where I think he played for Canada as a youth international we managed to to take him away and you know cap tie him and he's now excelling really for for, for Milan yeah um, Noni Madueke who's the young PSV attacker. He's one who there was a bit of a uh, tug of war, uh, and then he went to the under twenty one, the ill fated under twenty one Euros group stage. Um, so that doesn't mean that he will play for England at senior level, but at least they seem to have won the first battle there. If the, even if they didn't with Musiala in Germany. Yeah, exactly. The FA have kind of an army of their own analysts, and they they look to have their own game model, and they code their own data, and they supplement that with you know, suppliers like Opta and, and Statsbomb and various others. But they have a large analytics staff, really. And I think that part of what they'll have at this tournament is the coach will ask questions and they'll get answers. But also, you imagine there's probably a ton of data and video prep that's gone into every single opponent to try and find out what is our best plan of attack. And that's why I kind of, I always find the kind of speculation around Southgate's decisions and choices quite baffling because he spent months and months with an army of people completely analysing to death, like, what is the best way to to attack this game and approach this game? And he's turned over more stones than, you know, we have in 10 minutes thinking about it on, you know, on Twitter, (laughs) probably. So, um, yeah, I think it's probably not written about a lot, but England probably have one of the more advanced analytics setups of any kind of team of the world I reckon. On that Michael the the selection of Trippier obviously caused a lot of consternation pre-match with two other left backs in the squad or natural left backs in the squad at least and that's not even including Saka. Uh, you've been quite consistent over the years talking about how international selection I'm quoting you here is about building a team not a best 11 of the season exercise and it felt like this was quite a good example of, of that part of the discussion yeah like I say it was almost identical to the um to the side from the last two competitive games Pickford came back after injury Maguire was out because of injury but yeah the only change was at left back in the in the two March well there are actually three games uh competitive games in March but one of them was against San Marino so I won't count that one but in those games Shaw and Chilwell got a game each clearly didn't do quite enough to impress but otherwise it was the same and and Southgate has had this idea. I mean, even down to the fact that Foden played generally on the right for England. I think when most people were building their kind of favoured starting eleven before the tournament, myself included, to be fair, would, would probably have had him on the left or maybe in a number 10 position, maybe his number eight. But Southgate has almost always used him from the right. And he's, he's generally done well there. I don't think he was at his best in the game against Croatia. But as I um, you know looked at for the, for the article, I did on the back of that. His game was all about drawing out the left back and and having Phillips running into the space in behind, and that that, that was our really friend, the goal. our friend Pep, that we spoke about in the preview. 
Pe- uh, Gvardiol. Josep Gvardiol. He was a left back. He was a young 19-year-old who I think made his senior debut last week, I think I'm right in saying. So yeah, difficult, competitive debut for him. But yeah, it, it's all about team building. I think the, the successful sides tend not to be thrown together on the eve of the tournament. I think there generally is a plan there, albeit it can evolve throughout the tournament. I think we will see rotation from England throughout the group stage and maybe some more tactical variety in the knockouts. I think we've, we've spoken on this podcast before about Foden's ideal role and uh, obviously Michael mentioned there that he's he's mainly played on the right wing for, for England and I think we've spoken before about you know perhaps he's better suited as a free eight but I think we did see against Croatia he's just pretty lazy when it comes to tracking back and putting pressure on the ball I found. He wasn't overly keen on you know he has the pace to keep up with most players and he wasn't really using that to full effect so I'm interested to see you know is that the reason why he's never really playing in the midfield because can you trust him to be part of that kind of counter-pressing unit can you trust him to kind of put in that intense running Uh, he's probably much more suited to kind of be a pain as an outball to the opposition fullback and, and pin them back there. So, um, yeah, I guess that one for me was a uh, a light bulb moment in terms of okay, this is why he's probably not done that up to this point. Why we might not see him in midfield until he adds that to his game. And standout for England was Calvin Phillips, who has gone from a, a star performer in the Championship. He played his last game in July of last year to a star performer in the European Championships. Just eleven months uh, between the two. What a performance! And a- another player a bit like Vinaldum, who we mentioned, showing ability to perform in a different role to his, his duties under Bielsa at Leeds. And Michael wrote a brilliant piece about this on the Athletic site. So do go and read that and sign up if you haven't already. The current offer is £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription. So make the most of that, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking there. Now on Monday night, Spain came up against Sweden, real cat and mouse stuff. Uh, Tom, what stood out for you watching this fixture? I think what I was most impressed by at times was, and I'm going to go for the pun and it's late, so I apologise, but um, Sweden's (laughs) flat pack four, um, (laughs) where I thought they were just very kind of well organised and and they weren't overly manipulated too much by by Spain's kind of prodding and probing, although they did kind of get walloped in the, the XG battle. And it's probably just down to Spain's poor finishing that they didn't win the game. But I thought Lindelof and I think Danielson next to him handled things fairly well. I thought they, they passed Morata off to each other, you know, decently. And I think both of them cleared the ball the most and second most of any player in the tournament so far, which shows just how much they had to, to work with. So we spoke about uh, Lindelof before and I think Coxie put him in his in his team of the season and I think that maybe we saw a bit of a different game from him because he just had to sit so far back and he probably doesn't have to do that at United and he's exposed for his you know seemingly lack of pace and lack of strength but um, I thought he was he was pretty solid for Sweden. I guess the other side of course you know the, the reason why the, the number of clearances was so high is because uh, Sweden was so deep um, and it meant Spain had a, a ton of possession I think they had more possession 84% I think it was the figure put out by Opta, which is the highest at a Euros game ever, perhaps. But the interesting thing that I found, which is a, one of these kind of quirky nuggets, is that Spain had 38 sequences, which had 10 or more passes against Sweden. And that's 20 more, 21 more sorry, than Wickham had in the whole of the season of the Championship, which, bear in mind, that's a 46-game season. And this is one game for Spain against Sweden. And I think two other teams as well had more of those sequences than Wickham did so I just thought that was a, a great start and showing just how committed Wickham are to 
never having more than 10 passes. If you get to the ninth one, just kick it in, kick it into the stands and <laughs> recycle and go from there. From quirky nugget to tactical meatball. Michael, you enjoyed this Sweden performance very much in their own image, which is uh, always comforting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is the only game I haven't watched live. Because disgraceful. Absolutely I was at, disgraceful. Well, I, one, I was at the cricket. And two, there was a free slot at 2pm uh, today with no games. So I gave myself a 2pm uh, a game from last night. But of course, I saw the game. Oh, sorry, I, I saw the scoreline before I'd seen the game. And I thought, I bet I can I bet I can work out how that game has gone. Nil, nil. I think I know what happened there. And yeah, I mean, I wrote an article on the eve of this tournament about how I mean, one of the things I've always liked about international football is how you, you have certain styles, certain countries have certain styles that they've played for decades and decades. And I think that has slightly gone out of the game. I mean, I don't think this current Italian side look typically Italian. I don't think this England side look typically English. Um, and the two I thought before the tournament maybe had lined up as looking like their old selves were Croatia and Sweden. Croatia, I didn't think were very Croatian against England. Usually I expect them to completely dominate the game. I don't think they did that. But Sweden are always just so well drilled. They always play 4-4-2. That has pretty much gone out of favour for, for almost every other international side. I can't think of many decent sides still playing 4-4-2. But they, they do it in a, in a really organised manner. And I think that they counter-attack well at times through Alexander Izak, who is one of the most exciting players at the tournament. I think showed that despite not scoring. He had well, one good chance. And of course, there was the one he created for Marcus Berg as well. And yeah, it was just, it was good to see a, a kind of very familiar team. I think that's one of the nice things about an international tournament where, where, you know, haven't seen Sweden play probably more than twice over the last three years. And yet you sit down, you watch them. They've still got Sebastian Larsson there. They've, they've still got an, another couple of players who are very familiar and they still play the same way. And like I say, for me, that's what international football is all about. On Tuesday night, tonight, really, if I'm trying to keep this timeless because I'm ever the professional, the most eye-catching fixture on paper of the first round of fixtures was was surely France and Germany. Uh, France won it 1-0 and obviously because they are the world champions and people are holding them to very high standards, uh, especially due to the names on the team sheet. A lot of people not too enamoured with their style of play, even in beating Germany 1-0. Tom, could we sum it up as liberté, égalité, passivité? (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. Um... (laughs) You can tell we're recording this late. Um, yeah, I think we probably, I think we probably can, Ali. Um, what we saw, I think, with with Germany was uh, the game against Germany. Even is that you know France got got the goal, the own goal, which was kind of preceded by a luscious uh, aerial through ball by Paul Pogba, um, which I thought was a, a standout player on the night. And the the passivité, as you say, um, was that France's passes per defensive action. So how many passes they allowed Germany before the Germans looked to. Sorry, before France looked to stick a foot in and win it back, it was 56. So they allowed 56 passes before they tried to do anything about it, which I have a bit of a question mark whether that's a, an error in the data just because it seems so high. It's more than Sweden was against uh, against Spain and just shows that I think they were they were obviously passive, but I think they were well-drilled and, and forced Germany out wide and backwards. But yeah, that was the story of the game. I think they got a goal up and much maybe like England. And I was thinking about this when I was watching it, that I think a large proportion of England fans are probably quite frustrated that we're not as attacking as we could be given the 
magnitude of talent we have attacking talent as well in the squad but I think it's probably more frustrating as a France fan that you're not seeing at least two or three goals and then really going trying to go for it just because the talent they have in the squad at home in the under 21s kind of throughout the country is so so forward thinking I mean they've picked the wrong Hernandez really at fullback whereas Teo is arguably the the best attacking fullback in in Europe really and Lucas was I thought he was okay but he's not quite his brother so um yeah that's just just one observation but overall yeah Passivite was uh was the order of the day against Germany uh, Michael's everyone's got a different view on on how they want to watch football be be played I think most people understand that at international level you can't necessarily expect the same aesthetics as at club level especially when it comes to positional play and and you know sort of set piece movements within possession and that sort of fluid attacking play but also when it comes to France it it feels like this suits their personnel as well so long as they can soak up a bit of pressure from the opposition and drop a little deeper it's not hard to understand how that could bring the best out of arguably the best player in the tournament in Kylian Mbappe and you know even if he didn't score the goal tonight he was pretty close on a few occasions with those disallowed goals and don't you think that this just suits the personnel that they have? Yeah I always think people have been slightly harsh on Didier Deschamps when you look at their record over the last two tournaments I mean I think it's clear that they do have the best squad the best you know pool of talent to uh to pick from but I, I don't find them particularly boring I think they are relatively deep at times they are reactive certainly when they go ahead but like you say I, I just find the threat of Mbappe on the break absolutely thrilling and there were three or four times where he launched counters obviously the two disallowed goals and the one where Hummels had to make a very last gasp tackle on him and in those situations yeah I just find it so exciting um, so yeah, personally, I have no issue with the way Deschamps is playing. I think people are sometimes asking for a little bit too much in terms of, like you say, international football is not played in the same way as club level. And I can't think really of a side who've entertained all the way through a tournament, probably since Brazil in 2002, in terms of sides who've actually won the tournament. So yeah, you'd hope for maybe one or two vintage displays from uh, from France. But uh, I think in, in a group this difficult, Deschamps is probably almost treating it as a knockout tournament from the get-go. Yeah, hopefully there's uh, one or two more sparkling performances, but I, I kind of get why Deschamps plays the way he does. Tom, just going back to that Netherlands-Ukraine game briefly, with the... I mean, just the colours of the kit, the green pitch, the helter-skelter action. Clearly, you were as overstimulated by this affair as I was because you wanted to flag up another player from this game and another one of those great examples of someone who has to fill a different role for his national team compared to his club side. Yeah, I thought Alexander Zinchenko was was really good on the night. Um, Someone that we've spoken about before and... When I did kind of the piece on City's um, passes and the passes that won them the title, I thought he was just someone who, under pressure, is so good. And we saw a different side of him against the the Dutch. We saw kind of an extended passing range. We saw a lot of energy in midfield. Um, I think he had eight true tackles, which is tackles and challenges which are lost and also fouls um, conceded when attempting a, a tackle and I think he won all of them cleanly as well which just shows that he's kind of got the, the ability to execute his tackles to match that so yeah I just thought he's someone who I'd like to see more of as in a kind of midfield role and you could argue that he's wasted at, at City or at least you know you could you know a team that are 
lower down the table could probably benefit from having a player like him in midfield. But also, if you're Zinchenko, you're probably not going to pass up working with Pep to work with Steve Bruce, for example. So, um, yeah, another example like one Adam or someone who moonlights uh, away from home is uh, a completely different player. And Michael refs referees love them or hate them every football match needs them and I know that all three of us agree that it's a shame how much of football discourse is taken up by talking about refs and their decisions but I'm a big believer that it's it's good to be kind and it's not difficult to be kind and you've got something nice to say about the refs yeah I think the quality has been good can't remember too many scandalous decisions or controversial decisions (laughs) but you're part Um, of the problem Michael that might have been tongue-in-cheek but the use of a word like scandalous to describe a refereeing decision you're part of the problem be part of the solution well uh, here's my part of being the solution yeah I think the, the, the quality has been very good and also just the style has been good. I, you know, I'm not one of these who thinks that like, you know, who rails against football becoming a non-contact sport or that kind of thing. But there's just been a kind of, there's just been a sense from the referees are telling players to get on with it. You know, they haven't indulged them. There's been a lot of referees very visibly waving away any process and just getting on with the game. And I think that's just given the game a real nice rhythm combined with obviously the, the supporters, which I, personally I think just transforms the feel of games completely so yeah that's a positive there, there's been no um yeah no reason to focus on anything aside from the uh the players well done the refs uh tom lastly david marshall the scotland goalkeeper unfortunately is the one that that went viral after their game against the czech republic but you wanted to flag up the performance of another scotsman at the other end of the field yeah i guess we say scotsman but Lyndon dykes is is australian by birth i think but anyway that may be controversial um yeah Lyndon dykes was he stood out for me not just because of his hair um but he won six of his 16 aerial duels which was the the most attempts and a kind of below average rate of winning them but um he actually got into the best scoring positions of any forward we've seen so far in the tournament uh, and his xg was is 1.12 and that's higher than anyone else even Ronaldo when you take his penalty out of the equation so I thought that was kind of telling that I think the Scots played pretty well and again I think there's probably a a game state element where the Czechs kind of took their foot off the gas a little bit in that game but I thought that they played pretty well and I think that he's probably one that we shouldn't underestimate you know England shouldn't underestimate and and Croatia certainly certainly shouldn't either and yeah he's probably the best option they have up front I thought Che Adams came on actually and and combined well with him and dropped deep into the midfield and, and played some kind of neat interchanges there too. Probably better than Ryan Christie, who was floating all over the place and didn't combine too well up front. So, uh, yeah, I thought if Dykes does start, want to, to be aware of. Yeah, a, it was a bit of a blow that Scotland and Poland both lost because there were quite a few of us, a uh, sort of underground group, who were really hoping for them both to finish second in their group's D&E, come up against each other on the 18th of June in Copenhagen so that we could see Lewandowski against Lyndon Dykeski at once and for all. But we might need to wait till Dykes makes it to the Champions League for, for that to happen. That's it from us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast Euros Notebook. Uh, That was episode one of eight, as mentioned. We're going to be back over the weekend between round two and three and between each round of the Euros until its end. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on whichever podcast platform you use. You can listen without adverts on The Athletic site and app. And of course, you can subscribe to The Athletic right now by heading to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, where you'll be met with an offer 
that you'll pay just £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription. Uh, but from me, from Gavin Gunning and Darren Dunning, it's goodbye for now. And we'll leave you with one more name, Razvan Rat. The Athletic. <laughs>